You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Check and Finding Genius podcast series. I have Catherine Lewis. Uh, she's the author of a book, uh, The Good News About Bad Behavior. Um, I'm hoping to uh, hear some good news about bad behavior because I have uh, three kids that are in the teenage area of age, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are interested in this. So, Catherine, thanks for coming. How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Good, good. So tell me, um, was it a traumatic life experience that uh, caused you to write this book, or how did it come about? Oh, it was absolutely motivated by my own children's bad behavior. <laughs> so as so many things are, it came from the need to solve my own personal problem. So I'd been a journalist for 20 years and um, the beginning, the first half of that was pretty strongly in the business and policy reporting area. But once I went independent in 2008 and as my kids were getting older, and more independent-minded, I was just having more and more challenges. So I started to do more reporting around children, um, their behavior, psychology, education, and um, all of that c culminated in a 2015 article I wrote for Mother Jones Magazine called, What If Everything You Knew About Disciplining Your Kids Was Wrong? About a really revolutionary model for handling the most oppositional kids that Dr. Ross Green is um, implementing in Maine and throughout, actually throughout the world, but especially in New England. And then that um, article went viral. I guess I wasn't the only one struggling with discipline and uh, ended up, uh, I expanded that into my book that came out in uh, 2018. Anything uh, interesting, you know, while you were writing the book? I mean, did you, were there a lot of interesting sources you spoke to, or was it just, uh, you know, bread and butter parents that you surveyed? Like, like how did you do the research for? Oh, that's a great question. And this is what I always find is such a great privilege of being a journalist is you can call up the world's expert on something and ask to shadow them for a few days. And occasionally they say yes. And you can go and um, sit in someone's living room until their kids misbehave. And I was able to do both those. So um, in reporting the book, I spent five years really across the country following researchers, following educators, going into homes. My parent, my kids say I stalked families because I would really just follow a family and, and, and watch their kids and, and try to learn from it. Um, 
and ended up writing, I mean, I interviewed hundreds of parents and, and dozens of experts and I and sat in many, many hundreds of hours of, um, you know, classroom instruction. And I ended up writing about four different models for managing kids' behavior that were very evidence-based, very aligned with the neuroscience and the behavioral science research. Two of those are in schools and two of them are in homes. And so this, the book is really narrative. So it's stories. I believe humans learn through story. So I tried to tell stories of change in homes, individual kids or parents who were learning things and changing and adapting and improving, and then change, change in schools and in communities to show how a lot of our most commonly held ideas about kids' behavior is really wrong. And a lot of the things that we instinctively do are counterproductive. Um, you know, when we see a child misbehaving, we think, how do I make them behave? What reward can I offer them to get them to want to try harder? Or what punishment can I threaten to stop them from doing what I don't want? When in fact, it's really not a matter of our kids not being motivated to behave. They just don't have the skills. And after all of my research and reporting, this is the conclusion I came to, that this generation of children has the worst self-regulation in history. They have more difficulty managing their behavior, thoughts, and emotions than ever before. And we see this in really high rates of anxiety, depression, ADHD, substance addiction, and suicide, which is really the scariest for many of us parents that, you know, the, the suicide rate, even though it's very small, is climbing dramatically. It's doubled for our youngest kids between nine and 14 years old, and it's gone up you know, nearly 50% for our teenagers. So these are statistics we cannot turn away from. One in two children will have a mood or behavioral disorder by 18, according to the National Institutes of Health. So we really need to take it seriously and look for those tools and strategies that are shown to work instead of the things that maybe we, we think we should be doing. So what's an example of a really common behavior? What are people's typical reactions to it? And what, what's recommended by your book instead? Oh, I love that. Very specific question. So take the average meltdown, right? It could be your three-year-old, four-year-old meltdown screaming on the floor. It could be your teenager meltdown, you know, cursing, slamming doors. And our reaction as parents is often, I've got to squash this, right? That is not acceptable behavior. I need to come down hard. Um, and, and when we come down hard, whether it's giving our little kids a timeout or grounding our teenagers, we actually increase that oppositional behavior. And we're not teaching our kids any skills to manage the big emotions that are, they're experiencing. So when you look at the neuroscience research, when kids are having that meltdown, their amygdala is activated. They are in the fight or flight state um, where they aren't really processing rationally. They're not cr thinking critically. They're not problem solving. We're not going to reason with them. And they're not going to learn if we decide to punish them in that moment. They're just in a very emotional state. So we need to be with them, help them to self-regulate, it's a long-term goal to teach our kids strategies to manage their big emotions. And then after they're back in a calm state, then we can talk through, okay, what are the consequences of your actions? How can we solve those problems better in the future and process with them and help them make a plan of how to deal with that in the you know, next time it happens. So are kids more prone to being in a state where 
I don't know, normal conversation can't reach them. Is that what you mean? Like, what, what have you noticed about how kids are in given emotional states versus adults? Or is it the same? Yeah, well, kids are definitely um, less developed in terms of their prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that manages the rest of the brain, right? The, the sort of executive function center of our brain. And that's what we adults use, that if we're having a big emotion and we're in front of a police officer, we won't explode the way we might if we we're in front of our spouse or someone who it's you know safer to, to lose it in front of. And kids just don't have that control mechanism developed as well. But the really important thing that came out of my research is the change in 2020 compared with 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. And there's really compelling research that 20 and 30 years ago, children just had better self-control. They developed it through play, which is the work of childhood. It's how kids have always learned social and emotional skills, and they're not doing it as often. They developed it um, in the absence of a lot of the distractions that we have today, the social media technology sort of bombardment of our um, emotions and our attention with all of these impulses. And they developed it in the context of knowing that they were contributing to their household, to their community. They're part of a web of relationships where they really mattered and belonged beyond their academics or their sports or all of the really high intensity things that we ask our kids to do, to, to do that don't give them that same foundational well-being and mental health that, you know, maybe watching a younger sibling after school or having an after school job or contributing to your family's smooth running uh, might have 20, 30, 40 years ago. So what are some of the, um, the activities that, uh, you know, kids can get involved in, or you can get your kids involved in that make a that really seem to make the biggest difference? Well, um, yeah, so it's a great question and there's lots of examples in the book and there's so many other things that I'm sure your listeners are already doing that are really powerful for building their children's self-control. Um, I tried to tease out the really important principles of any method uh, that you might use or principles in parenting that are really effective in building executive function and self-regulation. And those three principles are the connection between the adult and child, communication in a way that builds self-control, that builds executive function. And the third is a focus on capability building. So you're really always going to be looking at challenging your kids' skills, right? And building their skills and helping them to understand what they truly need to succeed in that moment versus the sort of punishment reward model that I certainly grew up with. And I think many parents turn to instinctively. So that can be as simple as your kid has a meltdown, you just give them a hug in the moment, and then a couple hours later, you just talk through with some curiosity questions, reflective listening, make a plan, um, maybe help them draw a list of 10 different strategies they can use for dealing with a meltdown in the future. Maybe they want to do 10 jumping jacks or hug a friend or play with their pet or slam their fist into a pillow. You know, there's a lot of things that are acceptable to do to handle those big emotions. And once we lay out for our children all the other strategies and guide them in the moment to find something that works for them, we're teaching them that not your big emotions are wrong or bad or you need to shove them down because that is not healthy. We're teaching them these are things that you're going to do to handle 
whatever you're grappling with inside your brain or your heart. Um, another really simple tool that I love to use um, and I tell parents to use is to connect before you correct a child. And this came out of um, my my own work and also observing parent educators at the parent encouragement program here in Maryland, because when we connect with a child, even just for five seconds before we remind them of a rule they broke, we are helping them to stay regulated. We're keeping their brain in that prefrontal cortex where they can think logically, make good choices, right? We're not challenging them immediately with a correction, which is very apt to send them into that fight or flight state and get them to push back. So that's a really simple mantra that um, you can feel free to try out uh, after we get off this call. Um, okay. So is it just also distance from um, stimulus to reaction that helps people with executive function? So if someone says something to me that really upsets me and you, you know, or it says something to your kid that really upsets them. If you just give them, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it is, of time distance, does that help alone in restoring their executive function and helping them to react a little bit better to things? Yeah, I think that's right. That's a really good observation. And, you know, really our goal at ourselves as adults, I mean, I have found parenting to be the best personal growth opportunity because I myself have learned how often when I have a stimulus, I react from that gut, from emotion. And parenting, my kids, has taught me that we really need to take that 10 or 15 or 30 seconds if we're skilled at it, or maybe an hour if we're kids and we're not skilled at it to calm down to respond instead of just reacting. So when you respond, you're actually thinking, okay, what does this stimulus mean to me? What is my role here? What's appropriate for me to do as a response? And, and that's true for both our kids and ourselves as parents. Whenever we can respond with logic, with compassion, with empathy, with problem solving, as opposed to reacting from emotion, we're going to have a better outcome. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's just a very basic life skill that a lot of us weren't taught and we just learned along the way. And the sooner we can teach it explicitly to our kids, I think they're going to be much better positioned to deal with the big emotions, the scary thoughts, the impulses that are going to come up over the course of their day and their year and their life. Yeah, it's a daily struggle. That's what I, you know, that's what I see with my wife and my kids. Like we all need to work on our, you know, on these skills and our minds and our outlooks and all that just constantly. And I, t I tell my kids, you know, I have the same issues too. I have to work yeah. on myself every single day and it's frustrating. Yeah. It's and, yeah. And the down, you know, the, the, the upside is there's, it's a daily challenge. So you always have another opportunity to give it a try and see if you can, you know, make a different choice this time. So um, it really is a daily practice, but it's also, um, I hope one of the goals of my book was to normalize how many of us are, are struggling with these challenges with ourselves or with our kids and to have a, you know, really empathetic and optimistic message that there's a lot of really good tools and you can always start fresh the next day and try something different. Yeah. Recently it was funny. I, I realized I told my wife, I said, remember how when the kids were little, people said, Oh, that's such a wonderful age and enjoy it now. And she says, yeah. I said, you notice they don't say that anymore. Right. But she <laughs> laughed. I said, now we tell them the ages, they go, Oh, good luck. <laughs> well, I have teenagers as well, and I 
it is definitely challenging, but it's also so interesting. I mean, I would say, I sort of feel like this is our last good chance to really influence our kids, right? Before they leave our home. So I, I would say to you and your wife, enjoy this or at least, you know, be in it, right? And, and, and don't wish it away. No, that's true. What, um, what kind of feedback have you gotten from the book? Has it been like an outpouring of, uh, of people contacting you or what's it been like? It's been really wonderful. Um, so I did about 60 different talks across the country in the first year after the book came out and, you know, really heard from, um, you know, hundreds, or, well, maybe dozens, certainly dozens of, of readers that they found it useful. And, um, and also educators, I think, in some ways, educators, because they see kids, so many kids, they are quicker to see that there's a trend. And so it's really resonated with the, you know, teachers and guidance counselors that I've heard from, that this is something they've sort of been sensing, that kids are coming to school with less impulse control and, and bigger emotions. And it was very validating for them. So when I sent the book out into the world, I was sort of thinking I would be arguing with people. Is there really a crisis of self-regulation? How do you know this is a problem? And instead, uh, people seem to really accept that the first third of the book is making the case that we have a very different problem now than we had 20 years ago. And most people seem to really already be there. They appreciate the statistics and the science that I've entered, that I've presented because it really validates what they've been feeling, but they're very eager to get to solutions, which is the second and third part of the book where, you know, I really um, try to show stories of how do you actually change your behavior with kids so that they can change their own behavior. And how do we, um, you know, get up every morning with optimism that even though it maybe was really hard yesterday that we can solve the problem a little bit better today. So um, it's been really gratifying to hear from people and, and to, you know, have people continue to buy the book now. It came out in paperback last year, but still my publisher just last week was telling me it continues to sell really well. So um, I'm I'm really grateful that um, I had such a good partner with the publisher and that it's, um, you know, seems to be striking a chord with readers. Yeah. Um, I wasn't going to ask you, it went right out of my head. I saw, I did see on Amazon, it has a lot of great reviews. Definitely need to get myself a copy for sure. Um, Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, I I would guess just without thinking that you would probably blame technology and social media and smartphones and all that for the increase in all these negative behaviors, but is that really what you think it is, or what do you think is the cause of all that? So I alluded to a little bit earlier that there's three big causes that I identify in the book for our current crisis of self-regulation. Number one is the decline in childhood play, um, which is how kids have always learned social and emotional skills, whether it's, you know, Red Rover, Red Rover, come over, or Simon Says, you know, that those are games, simple games that teach kids to control their impulses. And then free play, outdoor play, um, being in nature is really, really powerful for for helping our kids self-regulate. So that's number one. Number two, as you guessed, is the growth of social media and technology. Um, I certainly wouldn't condemn it because it's also a great resource for parents and for kids um, who are looking for solutions. But we as parents need to really mentor our kids in how to use technology and limit it. 
it's not impossible to have limits on technology in our homes and it's really healthy for our kids when we help them gradually um, expand their use in, in a healthy way in, in conjunction with exercise and relationships and real life and all the other things we want our kids to do. And then the third factor um, is this lack of um, kind of connect, connection and purpose with, within a home or community that our kids a generation ago had a very real sense that they, they, were, they mattered, that, that the things that they did every day made a difference to the people closest to them. And today our kids are either growing up on one end of the socioeconomic spectrum in unsafe neighborhoods where they don't have that connection and belonging and they you know, don't have this sort of feedback of um, doing something for the people that they love that is immediately appreciated. Or on the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, our kids are asked to do hours of homework every night and be the superstars on the athletic fields and in music and arts. And we want them to do all those high achieving things, but it cannot be all that they are valued for. So the more that we can bring back simple contributions like household chores or sharing the work of the home or watching younger kids. Those are the kind of things that help our kids find a sense of belonging and contribution that is the foundation for mental well-being. And I will just add, you know, those are the three things I write about in the book, but it could also be some environmental factor that we just haven't identified yet. And it could very well be sleep. Um, in the last century, we have lost a minute of sleep per year. So all of us, kids and adults, are sleeping less than we were 100 years ago, maybe an hour and a half on average less. And sleep is very much a foundation of, um, you know, well-being, mental health. Uh, if you think about depression, anxiety, ADHD, obesity, all of those are worsened with sleep deprivation. So I think sleep is also a really important thing that we need to prioritize for our children. Well, I noticed, at least in regards to sleep, you know, especially when kids are younger, you, you hear commonly, oh, he or she just needs a nap. You know, they're overtired. But then for teenagers, you don't hear that. But I bet you probably the same still applies. You know, they just don't know it. It may oh. not be obvious, but they definitely need their sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And so many of our high schools start really early when just at the time when our teenagers, um, you know, biological rhythms are are forcing them to stay up later and then want to sleep in more. So a lot of the structures of our society are really working against our um, kids and especially our adolescents' um, health. So, yeah, absolutely. So is there a, uh, a sequel coming or, uh, you know, are you on to other topics? I mean, like how do you feel about the, how you've addressed the topic and how you've contributed? Oh, thank you for asking. I am working on a second book, um, but this one took me five years, so I'm not sure how long <laughs> the second one will take, hopefully shorter. Um, and then I'm continuing to write articles um, for magazines and online, um, you know, publications, as I've done for, you know, my whole career. Um, and actually I did just do a piece on sleep for Medium for One Zero uh, Digital um, vertical at medium. So yeah, I'm still writing a lot. I'm very interested in kids' behavioral and mental health. And I think there's a lot still to be said and reported. Um, so I'm going to be continuing to, you know, work on this topic and, and, and share what I find. Oh, so you think this will be more of a focus for you going forward? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more I write on it, the more I realize how it, what is really sad to me when it comes to kids' behavioral and mental health is the 
the disconnect between the science that that is established and what's actually happening in homes and schools around the world. Because if you talk to a scientist, and this applies to so many different areas, there's things that are just known that parents aren't aware of. So the more that I can help bridge that gap and just share what, um, you know, what the people at the forefront of science know about, you know, mental and behavioral health for our children, I think that parents really are eager for that knowledge and for simple ways to put it into practice. Yeah, definitely. There's a huge need. So, well, you've done a great thing, Catherine. I, I really appreciate it. Um, people can go, I guess, to Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everywhere to get your book. And it looks like it's available in a lot of formats. Yes. Yeah. Um, anywhere books are sold um, in paperback or ebook or, um, or audio book. And, um, and, you know, all of those links are on my website, CatherineRLewis.com as well. Oh, good. I was going to ask about some of your other writing. Where does it tend to typically appear? Where should people go to connect with you more and see what you write about? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I'm on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I try to post everything I write there. And then I also put it on my website, um, and um, which is katherinrlewis.com. And all my social media is slightly different. So it's probably best to go to the website and then find those um, handles there. And I write a lot for Medium, for the Washington Post, for Parents Magazine, um, Experience Life. So it just depends on, you know, which editors are interested in my ideas in a given month. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Catherine, thanks for coming. It's been a really good call. I appreciate my, it. My pleasure, Rich. Really great to connect with you and with your listeners. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.